As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We get perspective from William Dudley. Bill Dudley, describe transitory on the way down. I don't understand that. How do we have transitory disinflation? Well, remember, goods prices went up dramatically because uh, during the pandemic, people bought a lot more goods and bought a lot less services as they stayed home. Now we're on the flip side of that. They're buying less goods, more services. So goods prices are very weak and are going to be very weak for a while as, as people manage their inventories down. But once that comes to an end, then goods prices will level off. And so the benefit to you know, inflation from falling goods prices will be over. And you'll be stuck with what's happening in the services side. Look, I think this is a very good report today. And the Fed should be pretty uh, cheered by this. But I don't think it changes what they're going to do at the July meeting. Because I think that they said that they're looking at the totality of the data over the last three months going into the July meeting. And the reality is the economy is still doing quite well. We had 2% growth in the second quarter. If you look at the LATF Fed uh, GDP now tracker for the third quarter, it's at 2.3%. So the economy really hasn't slowed down enough to, to make the Fed confident that they're going to see that slack in the labor market that they, that they want. What I think this does do is opens up the question is, could July be the last one? And that's certainly possible because you know, they, won't, they won't move at the meeting after July. They'll take a break just like they did this last time. And then we're going to get to November 1st. Well, it's a long time between now and November 1st. I can imagine by that point, it's possible that they'll see enough news that makes them confident that they've done enough. So I think I think the November uh, rate hike is really up, up for grabs at this point. Bill, you talked about how disinflation might be transitory and that there could be a reinflation once the base effects are stripped out. And especially as real incomes continue to rise at a faster pace as inflation comes in. What do you have to see to believe in the disinflation, that it will hold and revert back to a sub 2% inflation norm over the longer term? Term. For me, it's all about the labor market. I want to see a slowdown in payroll employment growth. I want to see a rise in the unemployment rate. And most especially, I want to see a further moderation in wages. So the labor market's too tight, then you're not going to get inflation back down to 2%. That, that's, that's the key. Bill Dudley, thank you so much for joining us. Your commitment to Bloomberg Surveillance, really, really appreciate it. William Dudley, writing for Bloomberg Opinion, and of course, the former president of the New York Fed. Uh, thanks to Zero Hedge. They had out yesterday a Michael Gapin production. Uh, that is a chart from Bank of America 
that showed the fan distribution of our American inflation, where we could see the surprise of a normal disinflation back to the 2% level or maybe something stasis 3 4%. Or dare I say, we could even see sticky inflation and a rise as disinflation moves at lower. A lot of confusing trends in math. Michael Gapin joins us now, head of U.S. economics. Michael, what's the key determinant of how disinflation unfolds? I think, I mean, just, I, I think it's catching on with what Bill Dudley just said. Does the, does the labor market soften enough to give you confidence that services inflation will keep inflation running around 2%. So for, for me, it's about broad-based disinflation across services. Yes, we should get some payback in goods prices. We, we saw that again this month with, with used cars. But can we get a combination of disinflation in services? So beyond shelter, uh, I, I agree with you. I'm not sure airline fares fell 8% on the month. But is it broad-based enough? Uh, to, to make you confident that the new trend or we're back to our prior trend of roughly 2%. What do you make of what Bill Dudley was just talking about, Michael, that you can't see this ongoing disinflation unless the labor market cracks, unless you see a bit more uh, loosening in what we see in the job space? Do you agree with that? Do you think we need to see that pain in order to create a subsistence in this low inflation? I do agree with it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean the Fed keeps hiking. I, I agree with the narrative of I think the Fed will hike in, in July. If, we, if, we're, if we're posting point twos on core from here, it'll call into question what they have to do after that. Uh, so they may stay on hold. They may be reluctant to cut in, until they see more evidence that the labor market is imbalanced, that supply of labor and demand for labor are more imbalanced. So that argument may be more about how quickly the Fed cuts or when it cuts. Uh, than it is how, how high the Fed goes in the near term. This is an interesting distinction because Bill Dudley has been pretty hawkish in terms of the Fed having to do more in order to get inflation under control. And yet he just came on and said this is a great report and this may be the last rate hike that we see from the Fed this month. They may not go in September. That brings us to November, a lot of data in between. Is that bullish or bearish for bonds? Is that bullish or bearish for the idea of how long the Fed can hold rates at a high level? I think on balance, you'd have to conclude that it's bullish in the, in the sense that we're seeing disinflation in the U.S. economy that's, that is you know, gradually becoming more broad-based in an environment where the labor market still is very healthy and the unemployment rate is low. So again, I think what, what Bill was saying was if this is the new run rate, then yes, it would call into question hikes beyond, beyond July and it might give you more confidence. That's a less pain in the labor market is needed to convince and give the Fed confidence that inflation stability, price stability will be uh, restored. So on, on net, I, I think it's hard to argue that disinflation in an environment of a strong labor market uh, you know, is, is bearish. I think at the moment that's a bullish view. Where are you on nominal GDP? I mean, Michael Gapin, just simply here, if we go out one year, dare I say out two years, not that anybody's uh, modeling out to 2025, but do we get back to some kind of 4% top-line GDP, 2% inflation, 2% real GDP? Probably not until 2025. If, if most of our baseline forecasts are accurate for, let's call it, gradual disinflation uh, and perhaps a hiccup in growth here. In the, in the short run, if growth continues to slow down, 
uh, you might get you might get something around four percent temporarily. Uh, but I think nominal GDP growth is likely to remain pretty healthy uh, until you get into 2025 and inflation maybe is settled down to around 2%. We're speaking with Michael Gapin of Bank of America. And Michael, you were saying that if this data does continue, that does seem like a likely case. I just want to get a sense from you on the real wages point. How much does that make it difficult to see ongoing disinflation that real wages are rising at an accelerating pace? I think it makes it difficult if you're a policymaker and you're and you're thinking, you know, I need to get demand and supply into better balance. But what I'm seeing is a consumer that continues to want to spend and is getting significant increases in in real wages. <clears throat> so it may be hard for them to, you know, again make that conclusion that we're on a path back to two. It's about confidence in in that outlook. So you need a combination then of actual evidence on the ground that, you know, where is the new trend in inflation? For example, it is it is it point two or is this a one off and we go back to a point three and point threes are more the run rate or, you know, you need a collection of evidence on what the new run rate is, plus where spending and, and real wage data evolve. Again, it, this may ultimately be about the timing of cuts and how quickly those cuts come in. Um, and the near-term path for the Fed may be more about these prints on inflation. Inflation may dominate whether the Fed hikes beyond July, um, but the <clears throat> cutting environment, when they're back to a neutral rate of interest on the other side, could very much be about that labor market story. Meanwhile, counter-programming is Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin, who's speaking at a separate event that came out in tandem with the CPI data, saying that the U.S. inflation rate is still too high, that the Fed has been moving aggressively, uh, as aggressively as it could against inflation and talking about the longer term view. Michael, if we do see the, the rate hike that we get this month as the last in the rate hiking cycle, how long do you expect rates in the U.S. to remain about 5.3 percent, give or take, for, uh, for the foreseeable future? Well, we have the first cut coming in, in May of next year, next year. So our baseline still has another hike beyond July, but we've highlighted that that ultimately will be data dependent and we'll have to see how things evolve. Our first cut in an end to, to balance sheet runoff would be in May of, of next year. So uh, uh, the debate on the committee is some combination of higher or for longer. And, and I think they would be inclined to want, again, this is about the evidence, the accumulation of evidence and confidence about restoring price stability. So we don't have that first cut until May of next year. Michael uh, Gapin, thank you so much. And congratulations on that really informative Bank of America chart of the last uh, 24 hours. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
Megan Horniman joins us now, Chief Investment Officer of Vernon's Capital. Megan, do you change your outlook with this disinflation report? No, I, I think this was a good report. I do agree with that. Um, inflation's going in the right direction. Disinflation is starting to take hold. But I don't think it changes the, the move in July from the Fed. They can't take their foot off the pedal yet. There's still three things that they're looking at, and they're not necessarily looking at airline fares. What they're looking at is housing, which owner's equivalent rent is still slightly elevated. They're looking at earnings, um, which we just finished talking about how um, real earnings now are higher. And they're also going to be looking at the service sector. So um, those three things, they are improving. Um, you can't deny that in the report today, but I just don't think it's enough for the Fed to say we're completely done. Do you think, though, that there is a greater likelihood as a result of this report that this rate hike at this month's meeting will be the last? If this is the trend that continues, yes. Um, let's keep in mind there's a lot of base effects in this report, so we don't want to take one month as a trend. But if this continues, yeah, I think this is, this may be the last, but I don't think they're going to be cutting. And that's something that we've been saying for a long time. The market is too optimistic about the path and the timing of rate cuts. Um, we think they're going to stay higher for longer. They've told us that, and they can't afford, especially with the consumer still wanting to spend, to take their foot off the gas here. That said, how does this shift your view on how to allocate your assets at a time when a lot of people are betting that the economy can remain strong even as we continue to see price uh, stability restored to the market? So we've been taking the opportunity this year with the big rally we've seen across the global equity sector to start to reduce some of the allocation. We want to get more to a neutral weighting to our benchmark because we're not, while we're looking at a period where the Fed may be near the end of their aggressive tightening cycle, we're not calling for cuts. Um, there is still, as we said, there is still some inflation in the pipeline that they have to get under control. Our bigger concern is that uh, the, the market's gotten a little too optimistic about the economy. Um, we continue to to see in a lot of these reports um, underneath of the details that there is significant weakness in the economy and especially the consumer. Um, we've talked about this before, the Fed tightening cycle as well as now tightening lending conditions. This takes time to work into the economy. We haven't seen those full effects. The labor market's now starting to show signs of weakness. This is all negative for the consumer. So we're concerned about the consumer in the second half of this year, despite some of this positive inflation report, because we just don't see the spending that we saw in the first part of this yeah. year sustainable. So the, 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 to cut to the chase, Megan, I think this is really important. A tepid economy just simply means less revenue for corporations, and that's where the earnings shortfall begins. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and this is, you know, we're getting ready to start this earnings season here in the second quarter. This is the first, uh, the, the worst, it's expected to be the worst earnings season that we've seen since the pandemic. Um, we don't really think that this is completely over from an earnings perspective. Yeah, you know, I, I, I look, uh, Megan, it, the, it, it, the step forward here, and I get that this is one report. Lisa's told me that three times uh, today. Maybe you take a smooth three-month moving average of disinflation. Did the disinflation vector change enough for you to have to sit down and recalibrate getting to the third quarter? 
No, not yet. Um, I, I still think, like I mentioned, those three things, that's what the Fed's looking at. And they have gotten slightly better. But even if you look at the owner's equivalent rent component that was running a five-tenths on a month-over-month basis, oh, it slipped to four-tenths. Um, is that enough for the Fed? I don't think so. I still think that's a concern for the Fed. So I'm not ready to make any changes. We're sitting neutral with our equity exposure. We have a nice cash position because we are earning now on that. And we're looking for the potential that we could see some um, weakness in the equities in the second half of this year. I got to say, Tom, I'm looking at Bespoke Investment. They put out a report saying that at the headline level, there have only been two stronger than expected CPI readings in the last year, which is the fewest in a 12-month period going back yeah. to November 2019. On a core basis, yeah. just three stronger than expected <clears throat> monthly CPI readings. That has been the fewest since November 2020. There is a sense that Wall Street doesn't have as much faith in the disinflation as is actually coming through in the numbers. This is really well-timed that you bring this up because Dr. Dudley alluded to that when he did his Newtonian calculus in English, where we talk about the first derivative, the second derivative. You'd make jokes, if you're, particularly if you had a hangover from Course 3-2 Light, you'd make a joke about the third derivative or the fourth derivative. But all of this anecdotal evidence leads to some form of vectors which say, the agony of this inflation is over. Then the, the debate begins. From an investment perspective, Megan, is it time to get out of cash? Maybe not go into riskier assets, but lock in yields at a higher That's level what David Kelly if said. we are seeing inflation come in. Yes, and we actually started to do that recently as well. We moved our duration of our fixed income investments out a little bit, not 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 significantly long at this point, because I still do think there is that uncertainty around the Fed. Yes, it looks like they may be able to be done in June, I mean, um, in July, but when it comes to rate cuts, when are they really coming in? And we and we don't think that's the story until 2024. So it's not a rush to run into the, the long-term yields at this point, but we do think you should move out some of those shorter durations into more of an intermediate time, intermediate duration. Megan, thank you so much. Megan Hardiman with Verdant's Capital Advisors. Right now, we have a Darta moment. Michael Darta yep. joins us, MKM Partners. And the chief economist, he's also disinflation strategist uh, for uh, Roth MKM Partners. Michael Darda, is disinflation in place? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. It certainly is in place. Uh, so maybe these numbers came as a bit of a surprise to some. Uh, but frankly, if you've been tracking the macro economy, what we're seeing is a rapid deceleration in nominal GDP growth, aggregate demand. In fact, we've got some numbers on same-store sales going into July that are comping negative now. So nominal growth momentum has, has really hit a wall here. And if you just you know, look at an indicator like the ISM Manufacturing Index, their prices paid component has just collapsed, and that leads the headline CPI by four to six months. So, you know, this rapid rollover that we're seeing in flexible price inflation shouldn't be a big surprise. And we got a good number on core today. You know, those numbers tend to be stickier because they're tied to contracts and leases. So they tend to lag the business cycle, uh, but the market, you know, is, is certainly being lifted um, on a sentiment basis from that. So how do you think our Federal Reserve kind of takes in this print? We're going to get some PPI tomorrow uh, as it relates to kind of where they want to go over the next several meetings. Well, I think this is a case of, you know, once bitten, twice shy. So they obviously didn't have the correct inflation forecast coming into the cyclical upswing. 
And I think they've already tightened enough to put the economy into a eventual recession. And so, you know, the equity market is acting like a soft landing is at hand. And most commentators on your network and others are, you know, seemingly falling into that camp. Uh, Yet, historically, if you take a look back at the data, you don't get soft landings when the Fed raises rates, inverts the yield curve, collapses money growth, presides over a drastic and sustained tightening in lending standards, and focuses on backward-looking information. And that's exactly where we are. Now, equity markets... You know, I mean, they can defy gravity for a while. Uh, We've had a heck of a rally this year that few people have predicted, present company included. Uh, But the equity market is up on zero earnings growth. This is entirely driven by valuations. And long-term interest rates really haven't come down. If you go back to the October lows of last year, no earnings growth about a flat 10-year Treasury yield and a four-point multiple expansion. I mean, you know, I think investors do themselves a disservice if they are going to chase a market uh-huh. uh, that's been propped up in that fashion. Michael Darda, um, earnings season kicking off uh, in earnest uh, Friday with some of the big banks. What are you looking for uh, from this earnings cycle? Well, you know, we've already got a earnings recession well underway. So we have three quarters now where the S&P operating earnings have fallen. There's a huge and growing divergence between the GDP-based NIPA profits that cover all U.S. corporations and S&P operating earnings. That's been a late-cycle recession, bear market flag in the past. And then I mentioned um, the nominal growth momentum fading on the back of tighter monetary policy. If top-line growth is weakening or especially contracting, relative to slower moving cost variables on the wage side, you know, that is a setup for a margin squeeze. So I think we're going to have difficulty going forward. And then we have to ask ourselves, why is this equity market performing the way it is? Is it simply pricing in a huge turnaround in earnings? Or do the forward indicators tell you that there's no there there? And then eventually, I think we're looking at lower equity prices. Michael, so we, if you look at the S&P earnings for 2023, about $220 per share, a lot of folks have, will come into the studio and say, hey, that number could be even closer to $200, maybe even south of $200. How much earnings risk do you think is, is still left in this market? Yeah, I think there is considerable risk. You know, your run-of-the-mill recession uh, is going to put forward estimates you know, down at least 15 or 20%. Uh, and then, you know, the actual trailing operating earnings typically fall more than that. And you've got this big divergence between the economy-wide profits now in S&P operating earnings. None of that adds up to a highly confident bull run yeah. for risk assets, in, in my opinion. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, you know, I can understand why people are getting more optimistic because, you know, everyone tends yeah. to get whipped around by the market. And the market has done well this year. Uh, but I, I think we need to take a step back and look at this in a sober fashion. Unfair question, but I'll conflate the two. Darda would give me a C minus on this. Can we say that we're going to get a constrained near 4% nominal GDP? And at the same time, does that reaffirm John Williams' quest for a low R start? Yeah, Tom, we're actually already there. So the last time. Um, the three of us talked. We were talking about gross domestic income and nominal GDP, and the divergence is there. Uh, but if you sum the, you know, if you average the two rather, 
Um, we're actually already there over the last two quarters for which we have data. We're just below 4% on the average of nominal GDP and nominal gross domestic income. And prior to that, the recovery average was 13% annualized. So we were in this booming nominal activity environment on the back of very easy monetary policy. Policy has been tightening rapidly, and nominal aggregate demand is, is weakening. <clears throat> And so in that environment, you know, the neutral interest rate is not going to be consistent with a 13% nominal top-line number. You know, it's going to be much lower if we're trending around four. And I don't see any pickup in, you know, if we're talking about structural stuff, really that means supply side. So what is the trend in non-farm productivity? It's actually zero growth since the recovery started. Mm -hmm. We obviously didn't have a baby boom, at least that I'm aware of. And so there's, you know, there's no improvement in terms of uh, working age population growth. So I don't really understand the story here that the neutral interest rate is going to be higher over the long term. In a cyclical sense, yes, if you have a boom, then the neutral rate is higher. But, you know, again, right. if there's some long term structural shift, why is the yield curve upside down? Why is money supply collapsing? Why is bank credit collapsing? Mm -hmm. You know, those questions are just unanswered by some that are making, in, in my opinion, not very well thought out arguments. Michael Darda, thank you so much with Roth MKM Partners. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.